Professor, thanks so much for taking the time. It's very much appreciated. Yeah, my pleasure. Professor, we are in this world now, it seems, where society as a whole is in a better position than it's ever been, right? People by and large are in a better position than they ever been on a variety of fronts. Shouldn't that impact whether or not folks are happy? Um, you would think so, but you know the the uh, research that's been done saying that um, modern day societies are are better than they today than they were in the past are often based on um, aggregate statistics. You know the the rate of crime, um, and these things all touch us, but they're you know they're one step removed. And what they're removed from, I think, is the um, personal subjective feeling that a person has that they themselves are are truly happy or happier than they were before or happier and compa compared to other people so the uh, looking at it at, at the societal level i think obscures the what goes on at the phenomenological level it, it you know it, what an individual actually feels and experiences and there's a gap there and um, so, you know, in the end, to be happy is that we have to really feel that ourselves. We have to experience it ourselves, not just see that uh, global statistics show that um, things are getting better on average. Um, but when we look at things on average, there are people, you know, below average and above average and all over the map. And so it can be misleading. Um, uh, doing these uh, global comparisons. Now, you've written about how several nations have engaged in efforts to try to quantify happiness. How successful are those? Is that possible? Well, I, you know, I think it's useful from a, a first step. And, um, but their, their quantification is based on a single item usually one item or two items. And so it's pretty hard to measure happiness with two items. Their items are, are items that go from one to 10, you know, not at all happy, very happy. Um, and, you know, when pressed to do that, people will respond, um, but they're sometimes responding because they, you know, they, they know they have to summarize things. They know that the people asking them questions are trying to get at something and they want to uh, please the interviewer. Um, so it's not very deep. You know, it really doesn't get at the heart of the matter, which is their subjectivity, their feelings of well-being. Uh, and, you know, that's where the happiness resides. You've written about the seven elements of happiness. Can you tell me about those um, to the extent that um, you can do so in an organized way in a format such as this one? Okay. Well, you know, um, being a professor in, in the area that I work in, um, I am required and, and by nature, um, I look at things um, theoretically first and um, try to understand the underlying forces behind things. But I wanted, um, uh, when I written um, about happiness, it was writing largely for my students, you know, who, and I've been a professor for 47 years, so I've seen everything. Um, students have been going through depression, 
uh, interpersonal conflict, uh, physical illnesses, losing a parent, you, you name it. And um, I wanted to um, develop a theory-based um, set of criteria that people could look at and develop their own path to happiness. So not my path. And when I generated the seven things, um, you know, they they were just seat of the pants and somewhat also um, following the um, research, basic research too, that I gleaned, which is often done in a very atomistic sense. You know, somebody will study one thing often. But looking across the literature, I wanted to have a set of um, ideas and feelings that people could draw upon, but then could put themselves in place of those and see if they're relevant for them and if they are to develop that uh, and, and develop their own pathway. Um, so th those seven things were, you know, I'm, I'm sure I've left out some. Some of them maybe not a, don't apply to everyone, but they're starting points. And um, I, I think the first one was... Um, you know, having uh, someone you care about and love and having someone who cares about and loves you, um, you know, which uh, applies to just about everyone and starts, you know, in our young families, you know, with our parents and with, in my case as well with grandparents, because I, I grew up in the same house as, as my grandparents for a while. Um, and then siblings and friends and so on. You know, that's the starting point, and that's one of the seven. Um, and then the other six are, are are equally important, but they're quite different. And for um, students, um, some of those are are probably yet to be um, developed uh, because it's just before they've um, chosen an occupation or if they have an occupation in mind before they've really experienced it. So the, I know the second one had to do with um, a career or work as a calling. Um, so that work is not just something to um, make money and be able to provide you resources to do other things that you might want to do. But in and of itself, work can be um, you know, deeply satisfying. Um, and of course, students are in school to kind of find out what that future is going to be. So it's it's hard to um, uh, probably imagine that and talk about that um, uh, for a 22-year-old student, you know, although they're, they're certainly looking forward to that. But um, work can be a, a, a sense of calling. I use that just as a figure of speech. And that me means enjoying what you're doing so much, you know, wholeheartedly that you, you really love to do it and you can't wait to get back to it or, you know, it's a part of you. It's not something that's segmented and, you know, and separate from the rest of your life, you know. And it, um, yeah, so the, the, the seven things that I looked at are, are um, uh, starting points for people to, to um, examine their own goals and values backgrounds, aspirations, and um, see how they might, each of those seven might relate to that and help them along that path. And um, my whole life as a, a professor <clears throat> was one of, um, actually, it's something I picked up from my uh, dissertation advisor, Sidney Levy. And his family, um, like yours, um, immigrated from the Ukraine. 
a long time ago, and he's passed away now, but um, he was a wonderful professor and um, used what, uh, he, he was a, a clinical psychologist and he used a non-directive approach. And his goal and the way um, I developed under him is was to, to find my own way and he supported the conditions to do that. So once I became a professor, and it was very natural for me to try to do the same thing with students. I really wanted them to learn and grow in the way that was best for them. And I wanted to avoid being overly directive and, and giving them uh, templates or rules that might have applied to me or other people, but maybe not to them. So I, I wanted them to develop their own. That's, that's the best way for human growth and learning, I think. And so that's what... Um, you know, those seven things, There maybe there should be eight or nine, or maybe a couple of them I, I should have um, dropped out. But, um, uh, you know, I think it's a starting point. And um, most people don't take time, especially young people, uh, don't take time, um, you know, to reflect on who they are and why they're there and where, where can they be going and, you know, and how are they going to get there and how they should treat other people. Um, you know, and what life is all about. Um, you know, usually we're given assignments, even as students, but even in the, on the job, you know, the many of the goals are given to us and we have to, um, you know, it's part of the job description and part of getting through an education. We have to do those and that can be overwhelming. Um, so it's, it's not unnatural that people don't think about these things. But in the end, if they're to be happy, they have to at some time. And they have to take time to reflect on who they are and how things are going, um, how they'd like them to go, you know, how they could do things better, um, and also to take pride perhaps in how things have gone well. Um, so that's has been my kind of philosophy, and I know it's different. There are, you know, if you look at coaches, and I had many coaches growing up playing sports who were you know, very dogmatic, authoritarian. And, and very directive and uh, that was their style that's what they, they that's they believed that human nature was that way and required people to you know, be pushed and um, I came from the opposite tradition so um, Sidney Levy my um, great professor I owe everything to my parents they were very uh, nurturing so I, um, that's the kind of environment I try to use in the classroom and one-on-one -on -one with my students, yeah. which means it's not about me, it's about them, it's to help them become, to grow and become the person they can be. Yeah. How closely connected are self-awareness and happiness, right? Self-awareness being this idea that you know yourself and you can analyze yourself objectively in an honest way. How important is that? Well, I think it's very important, but before I say anything about self-awareness, when uh, we're programmed, that is, you know, we inherit when we're born genetically and the way our brains develop and through early developmental psychological processes, socialization and as a young um, child, um, anytime things happen to us, good or bad, um, you know, that uh, we're not aware of that until after often when we reflect upon it. And those things that happen to us are, you know, uh, contributing to our happiness or unhappiness. Likewise, when we have goals, um, 
um, you know, when we have goals, sometimes we succeed and sometimes we fail. And the success and failure have this automatic, like, um, psychological um, plus or minus for us. So, it, you know, that's happening all the time. And we're often not aware of how and why that's happening. And we have to take time um, to become aware. And the awareness, I think, is important because we have to reflect upon, you know, why we're doing what we're doing. And what does it mean when I succeed and when I fail? And how do, what does that mean in terms of my relationships with other people that are important to me or are related to my work? Um, we, we really can't assess those things without becoming reflective, becoming aware of those processes. And that's a kind of skill that we need to take time to do. And in the busy world of, that we're all in, the work world and student world, you know, it's, it's much easier to just respond to the pressures that are on us and to kind of lose the self-awareness. Um, you know, we, we have it at one level, at a superficial level, but to, to look at ourselves and others more deeply, um, self-awareness is essential. And that's part of um, uh, looking back on our, our lives and, and saying, you know, um, you know, have I been the person I wanted to be or could be um, and that's a part of happiness, this kind of um, evaluative, you know, the, uh, but the reward and punishment part is more automatic. And we have to reflect on that as well, because sometimes we can get carried away, um, you know, by uh, certain uh, rewards or, or uh, bad things. And, um, and we have to th look at them and think about what's, why is this, why am I reacting this way? What is the meaning of this? How does it fit in with my life? And that, that's where self-awareness comes in. And um, it's, just, it's essential. You know, there's a professor named Robert Waldinger who directs the Harvard uh, study of adult development. And, and his program conducted a study where they tracked dozens of men over the course of a decades long period and to assess happiness, right? Men from different backgrounds and socioeconomic classes. And the conclusion that was drawn is that happiness is most closely related to your ability to develop and maintain good relationships with people. Is that something that you found as well? Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, I mean, it, it probably logically it's possible to be happy if you're in, uh, live in solitude and, and don't like people. Um, but then that person in that condition is getting their happiness from not from their relationship to other people, but um, through whatever rewards that they're pursuing. But the, the main thing I think about, uh, I, I didn't know the research that you cited, um, but the, the main thing about um, relationships with others is in terms of what we give to others, helping others grow, um, not just what we get from others. Of course, we, we do both all the time. Um, but uh, helping others, you know, that's the meaning of empathy. Um, empathy is putting ourselves in the shoes of another person, taking the perspective of another person. That's the thinking part of empathy, the, the cognitive part. But there's a feeling part as well. And that's feeling... Um, compassionate concern or empathetic concern for another person, uh, um, 
caring about other people. That's the feeling part of empathy. And that's a, a, a part of everyone. Even psychopaths um, have some, they're on a continuum and, um, and they feel some empathetic like um, responses, although they have a hard time putting themselves in the place of other people. Um, so I, you know, social relationships are essential. You know, there, um, there's a famous study done by um, uh, you know, the developmental things that you mentioned by the professor at Harvard reminded me of this. Uh, Walter Michelle, who was a professor at Stanford and he moved to Columbia. He did a famous study with children and um, I think it was called the marshmallow uh, study. So with young children, three to five years old, um, I, I don't remember the details, so I'm going to kind of paraphrase and communicate the principle. But when when people are given a chance to um, children to eat uh, marshmallows, um, they could eat, for example, one right now, or or they could, if they wait a while, they can have two. And um, some people um, took those. You know, it, they couldn't wait. <laughs> they couldn't delay gratification. Other children could, and they got more rewards. So Walter Michelle also looked at people over time. Um, you know those children that he first looked at in, in subsequent experiments um, 20, 30 years later. And there's some evidence, although there's still a lot of debate um, about methodology and so on, but there's evidence that the, that the children that were able um, more or less naturally to delay gratification um, did better. They did better later on their SAT tests. They did better later in their accomplishments at work. And um, they tended to be uh, somewhat more happy. Um, there's some uh, belief, though, that, that that socioeconomic status is, is behind that, and you have to control for that. But um, those kind of things, delay of gratification, was very important. Um, and is also related to interpersonal relationships because you know for example there's a conflict between for most people uh, a tension if not a conflict between work and family you know there's we're always having to make choices between work and family and, and uh, family of course is part of our social um, environment and how we resolve those tensions and conflicts are, are very important um, delay of gratification is just one small piece of that. And um, so, I, you know, the, uh, uh, interpersonal relationships are, are very important. Um, friendships. There's research uh, done by John Cacciapo, who's a um, neuroscientist, University of Chicago. He's passed away a couple of years ago, but he studies loneliness. And, you know, loneliness is um, the absence of strong social relationships and really uh -huh. eat into the... Um, quality of life and actually even the the length of life that, that people can live um so uh, you know support systems both receiving and giving support become more and more uh, important as a person ages but even as a young person yeah because everybody experiences conflicts yeah so i agree with the the, the social um elements that you spoke about that, that the harvard professor studied yeah you seem to focus uh, your research on happiness in the context of academia. Why is that? Well, um, you know, I, I've had a lot of um, 47 years plus because I was, I was also a student before that, of course. But I, I've 
um, had a lot of um, fellow students when I was a student, later when I was a professor, who were suffering. I mean, really suffering a lot. And sometimes they come and speak with me. And um, uh, one student was a, a schizophrenic. And um, um, I've had a colleague that was a high-functioning uh, autism um, and many other family issues and problems. And so, you know, the academic world wow. is my world. So I, I'm seeing you know, students and faculty all the time. And I had, um, you know, it, this happens every year. And I just thought, well, I want to write something about it because I, I could see my students, they're so under so much stress and tension, you know, the, the, all the assignments that they have to do. And I mean, it, it, it's really strong and they really don't have to take time for exercise and diet and maintaining personal relationships sometimes. And I wanted to write something that would kind of force them to think about that and something that, um, that they would go back to, that would be challenging. It wouldn't be just a, a kind of a, a superficial or fluff it'd be kind of deep. And I tried to embed in their literary principles and many other things, hidden things that would challenge them. And so all of this evolved out of the, my everyday environment, which is, you know, every day I have students. And then it's not just the day I'm teaching, but my students um, over the years, I, I'm, I maintain contact with them and I'm doing research with students that graduated 20 and 30 years ago and they have families now and we talk about their families. And so, you know, it, it was just part of uh, my everyday life. And um, so it was stimulated though by the, seeing the suffering that my students were going through and trying to give them something to help them. Yeah. I'm hoping that what I wrote might have some relevance for um, you know, uh, everyday people. And um, so I, I've given it to my wife and some of her friends and gotten feedback. But, um, you know, I'm, most of my life has been focused on family, teaching, and research. And um, I haven't done much on the outside. Um, I, I saw the 30 or 40 kind of um, platforms that you listed that, you know, you're... Um, career has touched on New York Times and all those other things. And I, and I was thinking, wow, you know, I don't have anything like that. <laughs> My world is much, much more um, uh, circumscribed and, and narrow and simple, you know, and people would probably say boring, I think. I don't think many would say boring. What connection have you found between physical fitness, physical form and happiness? I would say that there are at least two connections. Now, um, one connection is is simply um, non-goal directed, non-purposive, uh, no purpose in mind, where sometimes people dance or go through uh, certain exercises um, uh, simply for the joy of physical movement. And they somehow they got into that and we're introduced to it and they're experiencing that just for the, the joy of it. Um, other people, you know, it's much more uh, a purpose in mind, you know, that they, they're exercising because um, uh, they want, you know, to, to live longer or to, to feel more energy um, or, um, 
you know, to, to sleep better. You know, so they have many different kind of purposes. So that's a, that's a, uh, those are the two sides of it, you know, sort of um, kind of expressing uh, oneself. Um, it's an outcome, not a goal. Other people may be the same person too. And, uh, it, it's a goal itself, the exercise. And I think um, exercise has to be tied to diet as well. You know, how we eat, how much we eat, what we eat, um, you know, interacts with our exercising to, to make us um, healthier, make us feel better. Yeah. No, it's funny because your background is in marketing, right? Why the transition, if it is one, or connection to this uh, subset of study that you seem to have landed on? Well, um, you know, I was, um, before I got into marketing, I, in a sense, I was doing some marketing. I worked for General Motors. Uh, I was an engineer. Um, and I, I went to night school to get my second master's and MBA. And I had an old professor there as long ago passed away. Ferdinand Mauser was his name. And he encouraged me to think about going on for a doctorate because I really like to write. And I really, I like to combine quantitative methods with behavioral science. Um, and the so I went on to Northwestern, and that's when um, Sidney Levy, my mentor there, um, along with the structure of Northwestern, Northwestern, though they didn't publicize it, allowed a person to um, obtain their PhD from the graduate school. So in a sense, my PhD wasn't, even though I was in the uh, business school or management school, as they called it then, specializing to a certain extent in marketing, um, I was following the classic pattern that was allowed by Northwestern, but seldom um, practiced. And my dissertation advisor had gone through a similar education himself long, long ago, 1940s, in, at the University of Chicago. Uh, was called, I think, the Committee on Human Development, which was an interdisciplinary, basic discipline type of program. So I studied philosophy, psychology, anthropology, sociology, statistics, and the business subjects as well, of course. Um, but um, doing that, I, it, it, I, I didn't define myself as just a marketing professor. I, I was more, uh, um, it, it, the title I used was a behavioral science in management, where management is the general business function. And so I, I focused on behavioral science. And when you are trained in many behavioral sciences and continue reading there, uh, reading the literature, you get ideas all the time. And business is, is, a, you know, is a, a big human behavior that involves sociology, psychology, economics. Um, and I saw it as more a laboratory. And the, the, the scientific problems that were popping up that I had been, in a sense, trained and, and appreciated were, were driving my behavior. And the business schools allowed me to do that as long as I still published some marketing, which I did and do. Um, so I saw my... I didn't find myself only as a marketer. I didn't find myself as a kind of behavioral scientist studying human behavior, interested in, especially in human emotions, happiness. Um, and it was kind of a natural development. It wasn't 
um, a conscious formal planning, but it just happened. And um, so many of my publications are in the basic disciplines because um, that's where they fit. And then sometimes I'm developing, applying that basic discipline knowledge in marketing. So I, I study consumer behavior a lot, but I also study the behavior of salespeople um, psychologically. And even I use, I use the classic methods of questionnaires and that people fill out and express their thoughts and feelings and why they're doing what they're doing. But I also use functional magnetic resonance imagery. I look inside the brains of consumers and, and managers one at a time in a machine and experimentally um, give them stimuluses. And I measure these theory of mind and, and emotional processes that go on in their brains. And I relate it to their um, everyday behavior, consumer behavior, their sales management behavior. And I do the same sometimes working with hormones and sometimes also working with genetics where I look at um, genes, um, uh, neurotransmitter genes and the interaction with psychological variables. So that's very basic research. And um, I had no training in it. I kind of developed it uh, over the many years and learned it and then started doing it. And um, so I, I, the boundaries, I, I haven't thought about you know, the boundaries. And there's nothing wrong with um, being a, a marketing professor and focusing one's whole self on marketing. And um, I really respect people that do that, but it just wasn't me. I, you know, I was... Um, um, broadly trained cross disciplines. This, this is part of a family tradition. You know, the both sides in my family of origins. Um, my on the Italian side, um, you know, part of the culture was they talked about Leonardo da Vinci was a hero. You know, so the curiosity and creativity of Leonardo da Vinci was pounded into me, so to speak, but but not consciously as part of the culture, or Michelangelo. Um, his dedication and commitment and discipline. You know, he was, he would paint or sculptor all day long from early morning into the evening until he was physically exhausted. And then he would, you know, jump into bed with his boots on. You know, th this, this was kind of the culture I, I grew up in on the Italian side. And then on my mother's side, um, the, the Humboldt brothers and Goethe, you know, who, who, I don't know. They talked about the love of humanities and the, the joy of discovery and advocacy for thinking across disciplines, self-renewal. I mean, these are all those principles from the early 1800s that they were promoting. And that was part of my culture from my mother's family. And um, and those things really shaped me. And it, so I was really lucky to have been at a university that allowed me to, to have this kind of... Um, interdisciplinary approach and to have a dissertation advisor who fostered and nurtured that, um, you know, that, and then, so I continued that. Once I graduated from the um, doctoral program, I looked back and I thought, I'm so grateful for everything I've learned and I didn't have to pay for it. You know, the university pays for that. And in the dissertation, you know, and I thought, well, why can't I, for the rest of my life, do a dissertation now and then, and I did a maybe 12, you know, speaking figuratively, you know, metaphorically, 
but I that was part of the self renewal and, and dedication to scholarship, um, uh, and uh, that was very important um, revelation. And I so looking back now, forty seven years, uh, that's what I've been doing. <laughs> Well, Professor, this has been incredibly insightful and interesting, and I appreciate your time. Uh, thank you so much. Well, it's my pleasure, and I hope it's helpful. And um, um, and if, if people want to contact me anytime to just talk about it um, or things to read and, and things like that, I, I'm open to do that. Yeah. Thank you, Professor. Thank you.